Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today, on what is a sunny autumn afternoon here in the capital, is Andrew Hookway. Andrew is the co-founder of XTech Cloud, a Microsoft Gold partner specialising in digital transformation. Um, Andrew, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Scott. It's a pleasure. And uh, no, I really appreciate being invited on. And I certainly appreciate your time and joining us as well. It's certainly um, turning into a nice day for it slowly, but um, I suppose the sun will be going down in the uh, the next couple of hours, so I don't think it'll be with us for too long. Um, but either way, um, normally at this point in the programme, we tend to dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle, because for leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it? But for yourself, specialising in digital, to what extent has all of this actually affected things? Well, well, actually, I mean, if you go back to when um, the Prime Minister first announced that uh, we all had to go and work from home, I mean, I, I see myself and our business as, as probably one of the emergency services because, you know, we, we look after approximately, I suppose, four, four and a half thousand business users across about 120 companies. So for them to be told that, you know, the next day they need to work from home, um, it, we, we became very, very busy um, making sure that, you know, they could log on to their, their systems and work work effectively. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very, very challenging, very challenging time for us. And reflecting on how you've sort of adapted to this new reality, is there anything you would say that you've learnt in your leadership position as a result of having to do this? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, you, you, um, I mean, introduced us as, as digital transformation specialists. I mean, what what we specialise in is is helping companies move from what we class as, as the legacy world, which is very much owning the equipment that you operate your business on and moving over to Microsoft's cloud platform. And I suppose what the pandemic has been able to demonstrate is those businesses that have the foresight to move to a, you know, a shared Microsoft platform found it very, very straightforward to be able to work from, from anywhere, whether that be in the office or from home. Whereas, those companies that didn't have that foresight, um, we found struggled. But, you know, we were here to help and support them. And also during this period, we've all be, all, also been able to help them transform. So should, you know, we go into another lockdown or this becomes an annual event, that, that they are well, well prepared. So, for, for me, as a, as a as a business leader, we we had to adapt so that we could take on that that workload and help those businesses. And and the other thing 
I've learned also is that we we did have customers that weren't as fortunate as as the majority, whereby you know they saw uh, um, a huge decrease in their income, especially within you know the travel sector. Um, recruitment was also hit as well, where you know we we decided that we would actually reduce their fees because we felt you know that they'd been customers out of ours for such a long period of time. If we could help them through this process by reducing you know our our fees to them, but still support them, and actually it's helped them massively because now just just today we've only got one customer that's on reduced fees and the others have been able to you know turn their business around and, and increase their income again so i think what i've learned is we've had to be flexible and talking about flexibility when we think about the impact that this has had on our working practices and the fact that there is talk now about there being a more wholesale move toward remote working among a lot of businesses, do you think that we'll ever see the conventional office environment as it was ever returning in vogue? Or do we think that working from home at least for part of the week is going to be here to stay? I, I mean, I, I think what, what this has allowed us to do is, is to actually test that that theory because you know to change a habit does take quite a considerable amount of time and because we've been in this lockdown we've come out now and it, it, it's been relaxed but because we've been here for so long it's allowed us to test that theory and I think you know working from home full-time uh, I, I don't think is, is, is a healthy is a healthy thing I think having that flexibility whereby there are days when you feel you perhaps need to go to the office to meet up with colleagues um, to do you know to do different you know have thinking time um, to collaborate and then there's probably times when you don't need to come to the office and actually it will be more effective to work from home but then not just from home it could be from from anywhere but I think what it's enabled us to do as, as business leaders is to see whether we can in, can trust our colleagues to be able to work effectively, and I and I think that that has been well demonstrated. So, in answer mm-hmm. to your question, I suppose I I wouldn't like to see us moving back to having to go to work, a, a place of work every day. I, I I think that's a thing of the past, and and I think the positive out of this pandemic and lockdown has enabled us to actually test flexible working. It has certainly. And I think there are certainly mental health and well-being arguments on both sides of home working and still having a workplace to go to, because um, for the home working side of things, we've seen immense benefits um, for the work life balance, people being able to spend more time with their families, for example. But also we've also found that there is no replica sometimes for that human interaction that perhaps we took for granted pre-pandemic for sure. Um, With regards to mental health and well-being in a leadership sense, just how important do you view that? both in terms of safeguarding your own as well as that of those that you're working with? I mean, it's, it, it's number one. It is number one. Um, it was, it was so, so, so difficult when, you know, we were in lockdown and people weren't able to, to, to come to work. However, now that that, that has been relaxed, it's, it's interesting to see from my own workforce who would prefer to come to work every day and those that 
want the flexibility. I mean, we're not we're not all fortunate to have you know decent sized houses. I mean, some of my workforce, you know, they they share you know a, a, a very small flat, and you know they're working off the kitchen the kitchen table. So I think it's so so important. I mean, we you know made sure that those working from home could come to the office briefly, take whatever they needed from the office, whether it be a desk, a chair, you know, their computer, their screens, to try and give them enough as we probably could to simulate, you know, that, that office environment. Um, it, it is it is so so key to, to you know, work very, very closely with with your colleagues, with your employees to ensure that, you know, you're you're keeping regularly in touch mm. using, you know, the various technology teams, Zoom, etc. But I think it's far more important than it has ever been because when they come to the office every day, you're seeing them, you're interacting with them. But when they're away and, and they're working virtually, it, it's a lot more difficult to, to, to tell what is actually going on. And how personally do you find it when you have to sort of lead remotely and sort of take um, a stance from a distance, as it were, and sort of meet with people technologically? Is that something that you find quite easy or do you sometimes value the uh, the human side of it? I I mean, being, uh, being in, in technology for as long as I have, I did find it quite, quite easy and quite straight straightforward. Um, with regards to communicating with people, but from a personal point of view, uh, I find I find it so much better now that, that the rules have been relaxed a bit more that I can actually meet face to face with with people. Um, I think this sort of theory that we can all work virtually and all work, um, you know, from from home and not meet each other, um, has been proved that it's it's not it's not it's not viable. And I think you, you do need a bit of both as human beings. We we do enjoy that, that that interaction. So from a personal point of view, it probably affected me more. But I still felt through the technology that we've got available to us, I was able to keep in touch with with the team. Certainly going to be a very interesting few months, isn't it, as we start to see the picture take shape as to what is going to become of our working practices, because there are so many elements of this lockdown period, as we've discussed already, which are likely going to be here to stay. And thinking about that just in a bit more detail for a moment before we do wrap things up, Andrew, because I'm conscious that our time on the show is beginning to draw to its close. Um, We know that we're going to have to get through quite a difficult year before we can even think about the uh, the long-term future. And even then, it's difficult to really plan ahead too far, given the uncertain landscape that we find ourselves in. But if we do pretend that we do have a crystal ball for a moment and can look ahead one year from now, um, where ideally would you like Xtech Cloud as a business to be? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by then? Well, we, 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 have, a, we have a purpose, and, and our purpose is to engineer a flexible community. So the idea of that is that no longer will people feel they have to go to the workplace to be able to work effectively. So I feel that everyone should have a choice, whether they want to work in the office, whether they want to work at home, whether they want to work at the beach, wherever they want to work, wherever they feel that that they can be most effective. And with regards to Exit Cloud, we, we have we have a solution that, that allows that. And um, I suppose 
all I want to be all I want to be known for is that we're here to help businesses to to implement that effective way of working. Um, so yes, off the back of it, I hope that the business will will grow. But, but as I said, when we started off this, this interview, I, I see us as one of the, the the emergency services in a way. If companies have had trouble during lockdown, during the pandemic, where things haven't worked, I'd like to see ourselves as you know uh, an effective solution to to help them should this become you know a regular occurrence. And I certainly do think in any case, given the transformation that we're seeing in working practices, there's going to be a huge need for businesses offering your sorts of services. So it's going to be a very, very big few months for sure for the sector. And I think as well, Andrew, just given um, how many variables there still are in this and how things will ultimately play out, I think it would be really, really valuable from a listener's perspective to actually catch up in future and welcome you back onto our show just to see how things are really starting to take shape. And we can see just what's going on behind the scenes at Xtech by that point as well. Yeah, no, that that would be good. And I'd, I'd, be, uh, I'd welcome that. And uh, yeah, no, I think that's a very good idea very good idea i also would as well andrew because i've really enjoyed having you on the program with us this afternoon and it is such a shame we don't actually have more time because it's an issue that we could discuss long into the evening i'm very much sure of that but um it's been wonderful welcoming you onto the show and um most importantly until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak in future please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on and let us keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer thank you very much scott thank you thank you no, I appreciate your time. And I'd also extend that well wish to all of the listeners that are tuning into the podcast today as well. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it makes such a key difference in keeping people safe during this time. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Andrew Hookway, co-founder of Xtech Cloud, onto today's show. Um, next up on the programme, we'll be joined by Sir Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew um, has briefly spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and become a champion for charitable and mental health concerns. And I do hope that you all enjoy tuning in to this interview just as much as Jonathan welcomed the opportunity to converse with Sir Andrew himself. All of that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. So Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, 
you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's 
easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, They'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.